Maternal Instinct by Lee Ramsey I'd finally decided my mother didn't love me the day she let those guys kick the crap out of me. We didn't speak about it afterward, but as I lied in a tub of ice that night, I imagined how our conversation could have gone. Her excuse would have been dismissive, complimentary and self-congratulating. Something like, I'd spent 21 years raising my daughter to be tough enough to help me out of sticky situations. This plan wouldn't have gone through without you, sweetie. Splayed out over the concrete with blood pouring from a broken nose. I could have asked the question I'd often considered in moments like these. Did you ever love me? She wouldn't have answered with such a sappy question. She would have given me the smile a scar warped into a smirk. But even in my imagination, I couldn't make her say the words. I changed into dry clothes and settled in the bed, greasy comforter, hours before she returned to our motel room. She told me to be ready to leave in ten and tossed something at me I couldn't catch. A small container of pills that pattered onto the pillow and slid down to settle against my shoulder. I didn't ask whether she bought them or mugged the drug dealer. But ten minutes later, she had me hotwiring a car in the parking lot while she went to get a bottle of hair dye from the convenience store next door. I watched through the window as her bleach blonde head disappeared around some shelves, and behind my eyes danced the bottles of yesteryear, the dusky reds and midnight blacks and golden honeys and deep chestnuts, and the bottles of those yet to come. Of schemes yet to be planned in the same slapdash way she applied dye to her hair. And so I took the car, I took the painkillers, I took the 50 grand I had the crap kicked out of me for. And I left my mother to flee on foot with purely natural auburn colour creme. I shouldn't be surprised, I guess, that when she found me, she shot me and took back the 50 grand. But she didn't shoot me anywhere fatal. So maybe she does love me. The Road Players by C.W. Blackwell Don't think, just shoot. That's what Donny Fats Fazelli would tell us down at the pool hall on 41st Avenue. It's the only advice he ever gave. The only advice worth taking, he'd say. Some thought it was a throwaway line, like he didn't want to spill any real secrets of the trade. But he'd say it in a half-whisper, with his eyes hard and narrow, like he fucking meant it. And man, he never lost a game. When Fats died a couple of years back, a few of us pitched in and hung a neon sign over the bar with those four little words. Don't think, just shoot. But those were the good old days. When the economy tanked, things got strange at the pool hall. Road players came through, looking to make their rent on the tables. Some came from as far as Reno in Vegas. And those guys really had the stone-cold nuts. Don't look, said Ralphie. See those guys in back? We were halfway through our second picture, and Ralphie was out drinking me again. He was starting to get that slow drift in his left eye, like the beer made it float in the socket. I can't see them if I don't look, buddy, I said. 
Just a peek then. I took a sip from my pint glass and sidled my eyes across the room. From what I could see, a couple of bikers from out of town had run up the stakes on some local frat boys. One was bald with a red beard and tattoos on his scalp. The other had long hair and a clean-shaven face. I suppose they even each other out that way. You see how much? I asked. I'd say three grand in the rack, easy. God damn. The action only got hotter. Soon others in the hall were giving up on their own games and starting side bets on the biker frat boy game. I was happy just blowing off steam with a few pictures and a set of nine ball with the locals. But Ralphie wanted more. Let's play the bikers next, he said. I'm tired of playing for beer money. I chalked up and gave him a grin. What's I look for, he said. Those guys are pros. And we're three pitchers deep already. So what? Imagine what Bob would say if I brought home a wad of cash like that. There was an edge to his voice. I knew he needed the money. I tried to let him down easy. Buddy, it's not our night. We ain't exactly at top speed here. You're overthinking it, man. You know what Fats would say. He'd say, Better to go home in one piece than blow a dime on this shit show. Shit show must have been a magic word. Because when I said it, things got ugly on the other side of the bar. The frat boys sunk, sunk the money ball. And they weren't humble about it. Next came threats and oaths. Mothers were dishonoured. Manhood ridiculed. Faces turned red and hostile. Someone made a move for the cash and the bikers drew heat. Gunshot, screaming. Everyone ran for cover. The long-haired man grabbed the cash and went barreling toward the door. Ralphie's left eye clicked back to centre. And I didn't like what I saw there. A wild and unchecked impulse. He choked up on the pool cue and laid that thing flat across the long-haired man's nose before I could stop him. The man went sideways and dumped the gun and cash over the felt before crumbling to the floor. Shit. I scooped up the gun, a shiny big bore revolver, and brought it up just as the bald-headed man loomed over us with his own weapon drawn. We locked eyes for a split second. He blinked. I didn't. Every pool game the bald-headed biker would ever play again went chumming over the table like spaghettios. When he hit the floor, silence gripped the pool hall. The only sounds were the crinkling of cash as Ralphie stuffed his pockets and the buzz of Donny Fats Fazelli's neon sign. I glanced at those four glowing words. I swear, the sign flickered at me. Bulletproof Glass Smeared with Grease by Kelly Scott Reed He checked his watch. The face of it scratched from the repetition, the in and out, of his hand between the bulletproof glass of the KFC cash-out window and the silver dish where the money was exchanged. Three years of unstable employment had landed him in the fast-food giant's bowels. Taking an alternative career track, 
he would explain to those who knew him as a 45-year-old, recently divorced, up-and-comer. Sometimes, between customers, he would forget what he was. He'd be a long way back with a girl he thought he'd had a chance with, but didn't. A job he was offered but gave up. Never happened. Maybe he should be a lawyer. Why not? He was smart enough. But he knew the discipline he lacked was what pushed his raft further and further from where he thought he was and more towards exactly where he stood. Behind bulletproof glass smeared with grease and a taste in his mouth that had become almost unbearable. The place was empty, still early. Yet he barely noticed the woman when she walked in. People's features and orders ran so seamlessly together that they became a premonition. The sound of the voices became white noise, an atmospheric suggestion of a need. She set a beeline right to his window. Yes, ma'am. Welcome to KFC. How can I help you? She raised her eyes to his. They were deeply sad with a glassiness that seemed permanent. There was a crust. He could just see it, just at the corner of her eye, driving him mad. Help me. Her lips trembled as she spoke in halted English. He couldn't tell if she had an accent, her voice barely above a whisper. She reached into the right pocket of her overcoat. Her hand seemed to reach down endlessly until she finally hit the pocket's bottom, elbow deep. She pulled out a white and pale pink slip of paper. He recognised it as a lottery ticket. He waited for her to reach back in to get what she really went in for. Instead, she hesitantly slid the ticket into the hollow belly of the silver dish, her fingers slightly going under the glass. Read. I'm sorry, did you need a menu? No. She shook her head violently, side to side, sending her loose grey curls springing out from all sides. Medusa, Hydra, he couldn't pinpoint the ancient creature that she most resembled in her frustration. She pushed the ticket in deeper. Read! The ticket in hand, he looks down at the numbers and reads each slowly. He whispers for no reason. She imitates the movements of his mouth with hers. She isn't asking him to read these very rudimentary numbers because she doesn't know the language or what the ticket says. It's that she wants confirmation. 36. She's moving her fingers over and over each other. 56. 49. He continued on at a steady and careful pace until the last two numbers, which he said quickly as to barely register the impact. I win, she hissed, and leaned forward, pressing her forehead to the scratched and flighty glass. She rocked her head back and forth, relieved. She suddenly reached her hand back into the silver tray for the ticket's return. He hesitated for a moment. He held the ticket in both hands now. He shifted his eyes between the woman and the ticket, caught in the fantasy of camera angles and culpability. He felt the suck of air that comes when double glass doors open at once. Two men, 
wearing Ronald Reagan masks, slide just inside the door. Dressed in cliché black with coordinated shoes, they don't make a sound. The woman whips around like she was electrocuted and stands stock still. Curls making a halo around her head, still moving. The two men initiate motion towards her with synchronised steps and grab the woman under the arm. She looks at one and then the other, as if one would suddenly realise that they had it all wrong. Someone would realise the mistake. They drag her silently away from the counter. Quietly forgotten behind high metal shelves, where the heat lamps popped and hummed. The cook's heads had popped up like prairie dogs, one by one standing on their toes to catch what the hell was going on. They lowered their heels and slowly walked away from visibility. Maybe to call the police, maybe to save themselves. As the woman was finally dragged to the double doors, she craned her neck, lifting her chest and heaving her tiny body backwards. She was saying something to him, but he couldn't tell what language she was speaking. Then she gave up on direct communication and in her helplessness, let out a yelp. Those men looked like they came in for a reason and found it. What had been secreted into his possession, those men wanted. From all appearances, they think they have found it. They'd probably shake her down for it out of public view. She would insist she didn't have it. They wouldn't believe her. She would plead and tell them she gave it to him. They would never believe someone would give their winning lottery ticket to a stranger. They would interrogate her for hours. A smile crept up behind the face he showed. Maybe they would kill her. Of course, he understood that she could use his help, but she had asked a lot of him already, and so he felt no obligation. They locked eyes. The urge to wipe away the crust in her eye appeared once again. With this smile no longer hidden, he turned away from her terror and walked to the back office. He took his coat from the hook, punched out, and headed out the back door with his future in his pocket. So bios, Lee Ramsey lives in Wyoming, where she spends her free time writing genre-bending fiction with a healthy dose of dry humour. She tries and fails to be active on Twitter at RamseyWrites. C.W. Blackwell was born and raised in Santa Cruz, California, where he still lives today with his wife and two children. A crime analyst by day, his passion is to blend poetic narratives with pulp dialogue to create strange and rhythmic genre fiction. He writes mostly crime fiction, dark fiction and weird westerns. His stories have appeared recently in Switchblade magazine, Mystery Weekly magazine, Pop Modern and Econoclash Review. And finally, Kelly Scott Reed is the AEIC of Rafflinois Press. She writes songs for the band Five Head that can be found on iTunes or Spotify. You can find her work all around scattered about. She is a very happy person and therefore loves dark things. 
Thank you for listening. This has been Modus Operandi, episode 5. And I hope you enjoyed it. Cheers.